0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I first saw the book 15 years ago when it was released. The title immediately caught my attention The Gutenberg Elegies. The subtitle was The Fate of Reading in an Electronic Age. Now that was 1996. The electronic age then was, it seemed, just dawning with especially the advent of the World Wide Web, with the internet, and with all kinds of new digital opportunities. Nicholas Negroponte at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Media Lab was talking about the shift from atoms to bits. But little did we know that just 15 years after the publication of this book, Amazon.com would report that it's selling more electronic books than printed books. It turned out that the Gutenberg Elegies was a bit more prophetic than even its author could almost surely have understood. Sven Burkertz was born in Pontiac, Michigan, into a family of Latvian immigrants. He attended the University of Michigan and had his early introduction to books, first by reading and then by serving as a bookseller. He later became a writer, an editor, and he now directs the Bennington Writing Seminars, Finn Burkertz, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thank you. Back in 1996, Finn Burkertz wrote a book entitled The Gutenberg Elegies. The subtitle of the book is The Fate of Reading in an Electronic Age. In his introduction, he said this Suddenly, it feels like everything is poised for change. The slower world that many of us grew up with dwindles in the rearview mirror. The stable hierarchies of the printed page, one of the defining norms of that world, are being superseded by the rush of impulses through freshly minted circuits the displacement of the page by the screen is not yet total, as evidenced by the book you are holding. It may never be total, but the large-scale tendency is that the direction has to be obvious to anyone who looks. Now, Sven Bergers, you wrote that back in 1996. That really was on the other side of this great digital revolution. How did you see that coming?
1: Well, I think I actually have been watching for it in a sense, because even before I began writing about um, things digital and computer screens i was already beginning to get fascinated i think some years before by the sort of growing omnipresence of the other screens of tv screens and um actually had a kind of television epiphany which i think was an early forerunner of my thinking which was out walking one night and being in a place where i got to a hilltop and was able to look out over a whole sort of panorama of houses in the night and i was just suddenly struck that all i was seeing were these faint pulsing blue lights everywhere i looked i think i began to get the idea that something big was beginning to happen in terms of where we uh put our attention and how we live our sort of lives our uh away from work lives and then of course the computer revolution happened you know Very rapidly on the heels of that and that just seemed to um, pick that up and run away with it and to my mind has um, you know continued in a sense beyond anything I was forecasting I think I heard a statistic some advertisement actually was saying that very shortly there will be over um, 5 billion digital devices on planet earth (laughs) or something like that and you know You get to a point where the implications can't be resisted. You really have to uh, start thinking.
0: Yeah, I I want us to think about that in just a moment. I have to tell you that in a deeply ironic act, in preparation for this conversation, I had a copy of the Gutenberg Elegies transferred electronically and effortlessly to my iPad and the uh, Kindle app. And uh, I, I actually had the experience of reading what you wrote there on an electronic screen, which has to be highly ironic, something that you certainly did not quite foresee when you wrote those words in 1996. But, you know, I, I find you to be one of the most uh, prescient and observant reader, writers about the, the fate of reading in the digital age or even the modern age. But let me back up for a moment, just to ask you, how fundamental do you think reading is to the experience of being human?
1: Well, I think that's going to depend on sort of the nature of the, the temperament. I mean, I think most of the world through most of history, we could safely say, has gotten on with its business without reading. I suppose what I'm concerned with is that <clears throat> that segment of uh, whatever, humanity, that uh, also looks toward any sort of self-reflective or contemplative um living. And I think there it is, uh, it's is—it's almost fundamental. Not that you cannot have contemplation without the presence or you know experience of books, but I think they've gone hand in hand since books began to be written. So deeply, deeply enmeshed.
0: Well, the book, as you make very clear, is one of those stable realities. We, we're familiar with it. Uh, it, it. It's made up of material we can hold in our hands and and, and there is tremendous weight in the uh, apparent weightlessness of these characters in ink. But we enter different worlds by means of that reading, and uh, we we enter a process of discovering ourselves. In, in one of your more recent works, you talk about rereading books and, and the experience of, of discovering that you're a different self than you were the first time you, you read a book. Uh, there's something that's just in, in, intrinsic, I think, to the process of reading – that we're entering into a conversation with other minds and in a way that is indeed privileged over the other kind of conversations we can have. It has a permanence other conversations do not have. It has an objectivity, a tangibility. And lacking that, we're really left with a very impoverished civilization, are we not?
1: Well, I certainly would argue for that, yeah. though so I'm i always trying to anticipate the counter-arguments, which are many and various, which have to do with the fact that... Um, I seem to always be talking about one kind of reading which is immersed, reflective, focused reading of a, you know, traditional sort. And the argument that is, you know, really being made on all fronts by people and by the technology itself is that the nature of reading is changing that um, you know, sort of unidirectional focus and attention of that sort are no longer the necessary norm that many people their experience of uh quote unquote reading is much more lateral. Um, it's much more multitasking in a sense. It moves very quickly between clusters of kinds of information. Which I really want to differentiate that experience, that kind of uh you know, quick reflex harvesting of stimulus and data from what I'm talking about, which is, you know, literary reading really. Um the entering into the sort of sensibility of an author by way of that author's language, which requires focused patience, attention, uh, requires kind of a context that is built and expanded, and um, is really on the opposite extreme of what happens when we uh, spend some time rapidly moving across links and sites on our screen, even though we are technically taking in information with our eyes and reading in a
0: way. I think it's very important that you distinguish between different kinds of reading. Uh, Deep into your book, The Gutenberg Elegies, you write, "Um, we don't just read the words, we dream our lives in their vicinity. Speaking of of the kind of reading that produces the kind of words you're speaking of there, the printed page becomes a kind of wrought iron fence we crawl through. Returning once we have wandered to the very place we started, deep listening to words is rarely an option. Our ear, and with it our whole imaginative apparatus, marches in lockstep to the speaker's baton. So there's a difference between just receiving words by hearing and the experience of reading. And and then with the experience of reading, you differentiate between kind of a superficial reading, which is gathering data, and what you in the Gutenberg elegies call called deep reading. Right.
1: And I suppose hand in hand with that, um, and I know somewhere in there I build on this distinction too and it's um i suppose i invoke a, another kind of time in a way which to me is the time that reading creates or that is necessary in order for that reading to happen and that is uh has often been called duration time by uh you know philosophers of time and that's the time which steps away from the notion of the awareness of the linear chronological succession of moments and becomes a kind of immersed... It's a time that forgets that time is passing. It's the time of immersion. And my argument, and this would extend beyond just reading, but I think that it is the time in which um, all, all kinds of art forms happen. I think when we stand in front of a painting and contemplate it, we've stepped away from one grid of time and we're in a contemplative time, which is very comparable to the uh, sort of subjective space we're in when we read. I think if we're listening to music in a deep, sort of attentive way, something similar happens. So I I think it's a feature of um, kind of something available to consciousness, which I think is essential, and that's what I think sometimes is the endangered uh, thing out in our world, just the erosion of that kind of attentiveness, and even of our own ability to stay with something.
0: Early and, in your your yeah. book, you, you you write about the experience, and this was also early in your life when you were kind of uh, estimating the value of libraries to to buy for a second-hand bookstore. As I recall, you tell about going to a man who was going to sell his library, and it turned out he was a a, a college professor who uh, had, had somehow left his profession or lost his job. And he he invited you in to purchase his entire collection of books, a rather massive and very significant collection of books. And uh, instead he showed you, as I recall, in his basement, a personal computer, which was then a very new thing. Yes. And he said, this is the future. I have to tell you, that's one of the most haunting stories about books and reading I've read in a very long time.
1: Yeah, and that, was, it, that really did happen. It's funny how it's a kind of... Um... Updated analogy or counterpart to the there's a fairly well known moment. I think it's in uh, a novel of Victor Hugo's where uh, two people are standing and on in the vista is you know a cathedral and the other person is holding a book in his hand and he lifts the book and says this will destroy that essentially. Um, I guess standing for Enlightenment thinking as opposed to, you know, the old age of faith or whatever, but kind of that notion of one thing entirely historically superseding another, which mercifully hasn't happened, which is also part of the story, I suppose. Um, you know, the man sold his books and took his computer, but he was only partly right. <laughs> We're still here.
0: Uh And we still read books, and at least some people do, do. and it it is yet a different experience. The way I I, I expressed this uh, just the other day is that the experience of reading a book now is a choice in a way it wasn't before. Uh, It it is a choice among other options that are preferable to many people in in this society who still think themselves well-informed and even thoughtful. Uh, To to read a book or a certain kind of book is is a kind of rebellion these days in a way that, that it wasn't. And uh, speaking even to some college students recently, I, I, I come to understand that they are not required to read, even as much, or certainly in terms of as as, as much weight as I think previous generations were. So it, it is an act I think inquires, requires more intentionality now. Do you agree?
1: I completely agree, yeah. <clears throat> I do as, you know, also the father of a high school boy who, you know, I'm, I'm constantly amazed as i sort of check in and see what's going on in school and what is being asked and isn't and what are the attitudes and i think a lot of it has to do with an availability of not only entertainment options but information options i mean there was not a lot of choice when i was you know 13 or 14 year old kid with a lot of time on my hands you know we still had uh Maybe three channels running on TV with not that much on, and there certainly wasn't a whole culture of interactive gaming. And, you know, books stood in a different context of possibility, which doesn't mean that everyone read, but it made it far more likely that one would, in a kind of stray moment of downtime, reach for something and get absorbed in it. And I think that, of course... Possibility, possible, the possibility never goes away, but um, the cultural circumstance and the likelihood of that
0: has changed, has diminished considerably, I think. Sven Burkertz makes the very compelling point that there is a distinction between reading a, a book, uh, that is the printed page, and observing a screen. Now, people will immediately retort, well, that's reading, too. Well, as Sven Berkertz points out, it's reading all right, but it's not the same kind of reading. It's not the same experience of reading. There are certain things that can be read adequately, perhaps even well, maybe even preferably on electronic screen. But when it comes to certain kinds of reading, what he calls deep reading, well, that takes the encounter with a book. That generally means the printed page something with covers that you hold in the hand and turn at your leisure and reflect upon just with the technology of ink on paper. Back in 1996, uh, you wrote with, I, th- I think, incredible foresight uh, about what the French philosopher jacques Lou called the technological imperative. Uh, once a technology exists... It virtually demands to be used. And uh, in the latter section of the Gutenberg Elegy, you wrote this. I think then in terms of a face-off, a struggle, a war, but it is to a large degree a war inside myself. In the larger societal sphere, there is no great contest. We already know that technological ingenuity will set the agenda and that Americans never that deeply entrenched in tradition will follow. We are accustomed to taking up interesting offers, and the nature of the whole electronic system is such that recalcitrance is discouraged. Think of the incursion of the teletechnologies, phone and TV, and more recently, the telephone answering machine. Our society exerts pressure that makes it very hard not to play the game. The game underway now is a game called Online, and bitter as it is to say, uh, I'm still on the platform watching the dance of the candy wrappers. Uh, You know, I I read that, and I thought, you know, back in 1996— the technological imperative was already clear with the telephone answering machine. Now that seems almost quaint. Uh, you know, I, know. I, I carry when you more. Read that, I had that yeah.
1: same reaction. It sounded quaint to me. Well,
0: but but quaint in a in a prophetic kind of way. I mean, we we probably carry around in, with our smartphone more computing power than the Apollo's you know space missions had. And here we are writing about how even the, the telephone and the television have distanced us from, from the act of reading. And I, what I want to get to is this. Uh, you concluded the Gutenberg elegies with two pretty famous words to those who read your work back then, speaking against the challenge of technology. Even after all the very honest things you said in the book, you disclosed more or less the two words, refuse it. And, uh, and then when you uh, updated the book, and uh, wrote a, a new introduction and afterward, about 10 years later, you came back and and you kind of revised Refuse It uh, in, in a, a bit more nuanced way, to say more or less, uh, it says it falls to us individually, one by one, to decide how we will face up to the seduction of the new, how much of it to use, how much to refuse. So looking at it now, how, how much should we refuse?
1: <laughs> that is such an interesting question. And uh I cannot speak for everyone. I can speak for myself. I'm even more aware than I was when I wrote that sort of revised preface, um, of the pressure of that on my daily life. Um, I, in you know, looking back to what I said, our society makes it very difficult to refuse certain offers. The fact that I don't have a cell phone. I've decided, for instance, that that whole array of possible Is an applications is one I want to uh, pass on. It doesn't mean that the people in my family and around me don't do that. But for me, I'm not doing it out of just sheer cussedness because I will, you know, use the computer. I go online. I email. But um, it's a choice about the incursions on my inner life and my capacity for attention and my disinclination to be distracted. And so I'm always building fence lines, um, those that fit my needs. And I imagine every single person has a different set of priorities. I need a certain kind of time, and I need a certain amount of it, and I need to do what I can to resist those things that are going to carve it away. And I'm all too aware of how subtly and deviously these appliances can do that, even if, you know, you're just carrying it around as a kind of, something potential buzzing in your pocket, <laughs> yeah. um, it creates a different mentality. and I.
0: It also creates expectations. Pe- people it uh, they clearly expect you to return emails and, and, and oh, to see their text messages and uh, to return their telephone calls or at least to listen to their voicemails. And when I consider my life as compared to where it was 30 years ago, about the time I graduated from college, I have a lot less time, Uh, even before you consider the professional responsibilities and all the rest that's come in with marriage and children and all the rest. I just have less time because of the electronic world I live in.
1: Absolutely. And I would just supplement what I just said also, that on the one hand, for me, again, I'm speaking out of my set of subjective needs, but on the one front, it's a matter of trying to keep things at bay at a certain distance. Um, But at the other, I find that I have to be slightly more purposeful about getting on with that thing, which I know is at the core of my life, which is, let's say, reading and thinking and immersing myself in a certain kind of contemplative world, which books represent to me. Um, I have to undertake that with a certain decisiveness. I have to say, okay, now I'm going to do this. I know that when I do it, I'm happy. (laughs) So therefore, um, it's not merely that I'm going to wait to see what happens, but I'm going to actively pursue it because I feel that when I do, um, it is charging a battery that I need to keep charged in a specific way so that I can order what I feel are my own priorities.
0: Books make me happy. And, and, and yeah. even reading your uh, your own autobiographical uh, revelations that you make in, in your own interaction with reading. Uh, I resonate with so much of it, uh, all, all the way back to some of the early things you read, which I also read at about the same age and had the same kind of experience. Also the same experience, by the way, in discovering that one's son does not necessarily share one's own literary taste at the same stage <laughs> in life. But, uh, you know, b- books make me happy. I'm surrounded by books. I, I come alive in bookstores and libraries. I I I, I – I, I love the experience of reading. I, I never had to be forced to read. I, I, I find great exhilaration, great restoration uh, and all of that in reading. But I say all that to say that if I sit at my desk where there is a computer and a mouse, I, I, I'm distracted. I have to read in a place where I am physically distant from the technologies – or they are calling out to me. That technological imperative that Alou spoke of, it's there saying, use me, check me, something's new, someone's written you, there's an email you need to answer. Or what I found even last night as I I was reviewing again uh, some of my notes I made back in 1996 on the Gutenberg elegies, I, I, you made some references to things, and my first instinct was to go Google and look up the uh, look up the article, check the source. And I realized that's not what I'm doing, that I'm playing the game, I'm falling prey to the very thing I'm trying to resist. So I, I have to get geographically separate, physically separate from those things.
1: Oh, no, I do too, and I'm glad you said that. I it, There's a real, there's a literal and physical demarcation. And I think this is the nature of all of these particular technologies is that they're Their genius and their sort of whatever is the opposite, (laughs) the negative side, is that they um, create a psychological sensation of potentiality, which I think is, in fact, addictive to us. And I think it's very odd um, to have an experience for whatever reason where you abruptly leave the uh, 21st century, you know, glowing environment and whatever, you know, go into the woods for a day or leave or just are away from it, there is an almost, um, oh, it's almost physical, the the withdrawal. What has happened is that the switch of all that sense of imminent information, sort of living in an environment which is constantly feeding you the next thing and then you step out into the night and there really is no next thing. There's just, you know, there's the night, <laughs> there are the trees. Um, it's a real psychological ledge.
0: Let me ask you they... to turn, if you will, from from the experience of reading to the experience of writing. Uh, you began as a lover of books by reading. You talk about reading, especially your mother's books, as she had kind of stocked uh, her own bookcases in the house. And 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 uh, I love the part because I so associated with this, where you asked, uh, you know, as a as a, a kind of a middle schooler to be dropped off in order that you could read in the bookstore while your mom went shopping. I, I that that I raised my hand. Me too. Uh, and so I experienced all of that. And uh, and yet at some point you made the transition from reader to writer. How did that happen?
1: Well, I think there is. <clears throat> I think the writing impulse is- present very early, I think the two are braided together often, and I think it has something to do possibly with that that quality of when we were talking about that you actually hear what you're reading with uh you know t s Eliot called it the auditory imagination uh if you spend enough time with books that becomes your subjective climate in a way you are hearing a sound well it's very often the sound of an author's language but I think it also is the sound of your own thinking and your experience turning into language. And there is a great pressure to emulate and to extend the pleasure and to do some of that which is so appealing. I mean, just like when you hear enough music, you want to make music. It's a, it's a hmm. kind of turnaround. And I think it is an extension of when the um, inner imaginative life becomes active enough, it needs graves outlet. So for me it was interesting though because i <clears throat> what so compelled me as a reader for a very long time was you know moving into the world of novels i mean a novel to me was an alternate experience and i just that became the thing that i <clears throat> wanted to be able to do as well i wanted to create those kinds of environments those sort of psychological places and i i'd say i gave a good 10 years of my First years of writing to writing fiction, which didn't pan out for me for various reasons. And um, what happened was that I discovered that I also could use language in another way, and that was to write about the things that I was so moved by of other people. I became essentially an essayist and a literary critic.
0: Well, in, in your book, you make a very interesting comment about the shift, even in, uh, in book sales, from fiction and literature to nonfiction and memoir. And uh, there's, there's no doubt that's happened. And, you know, I reflected on something else. People ask me for book recommendations all the time. And I find that I can very easily recommend nonfiction, very easily recommend biography and memoir. I find it more difficult to recommend literature because the story is not a stable thing. Uh, right. I, I, yeah. I finally determined that the difficulty in, in recommending a novel is that person may read it in an entirely different way. The, the, yeah, this novel was for me this. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think you have to make a judgment about that person's imaginative needs and capacities. I mean, I love doing that when it connects. There's nothing more gratifying than putting the right book into the right the right novel into the right person's hands and having them come back to you and saying, you know, I can't believe how much I loved that book because you've made a a call in a sense about what you know of the novel and what you know of them and you you've brought two people together. It's like you're a matchmaker. Um It often fails, too. The person comes back and says, I just couldn't get into it, you know. But there is something very gratifying. To me, it speaks to a kind of imaginative or psychological continuum, not only between individual book and reader, but between uh, readers, plural, and books, plural, and the fact that there is a great deal of active traffic that goes on, which is really, you know, separate people in separate places Moving along an imaginative continuum, which is kind of fascinating to think
0: about. Looking to the future, uh, back in 1996, you wrote with uh, an incredible insight about what was coming. And uh, you said you wrote it out of a sense of what you described as a personal emergency. Uh, You you saw the fate of reading and the fate of the book in an electronic age to be something uh, of an emergency. Ten years later, you updated it, and uh, I think in a very sober and honest way, but now we're in 2011. We're 15 years after the publication of the Gutenberg Elegies. Uh, we, we have now grown accustomed to technologies that were not even dreamt of in 1996. So, so what do you see as the, the fate of reading and the fate of books? And, and that against the background of the fact, I have to tell you, I, I subscribe to the Twitter feed for Publishers Weekly, ah. which is itself something of an irony. But uh, tweet after tweet tends to come from Publishers Weekly saying this independent bookstore is closed. This publisher's declared bankruptcy. Uh, at the same time, there'll be six tweets that come later saying this uh, th- this publishing house just signed this author for this big new blockbuster book. So it seems to be kind of a double-edged thing. I, I want to s- to know what you see looking to the future.
1: Well, I can list off a few things that I see. One, I, I think it's um. Reading itself, and the kind of reading we've been talking about, is, is powerful and it's not going to disappear. I think it will possibly diminish and take its place among things that other people find they can get pleasure or edification from in other forms. But I think it will further lose its, you know former cultural supremacy, but I don't think it will disappear. I think it will remain the coin of the realm among a certain kind of temperament. I think there will be a very big question to see how, because I do think we are pretty inevitably migrating increasingly toward you know, the Kindle and the iPad kind of reading, but even the reading of things we traditionally read on paper, um, how that will lay out. I I hope always that i'm wrong and that it turns out that this is a flourishing new way for the word to survive and that reading rides on on the wings of the wings of its screens um i think there's an enormous threat to the kind of reading that i think about which is very short distance down the road i mean the minute reading has migrated into a digital context where it's being read from screens the door is wide open to infiltrating the text with you know every application you can think of you know click the button and see a picture of Chart Cathedral as you're reading your novel about whatever click the button and hear you know the strains of the Kreutzer Sonata while you're reading Tolstoy I think. It's going to be very hard to stave off the commercial invasion of the literary text by adjacent media.
0: Even as on. now they are offering a discounted price to the Kindle, if you'll accept a Kindle that comes with advertising. So you could have <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Tolstoy with, yeah. uh, with advertising as well. Sven Berkert, it's been, it's been a real privilege to have this conversation. Let me ask you, what, what is your next project? What are you working on in terms of writing right now?
1: Well, I just have, two days ago, got the galleys for a forthcoming book that Grey Wolf Press is publishing in September. It's called The Other Walk. It's a series of sort of autobiographical vignettes, which are really premised on how memory invades the daily life. And it's uh, it's something different. They're shorter pieces. They're very much drawn from the encounters of dailiness. I think they're lyric. I hope they're interesting. And I definitely keep various notebooks going where I'm trying to make sense of the new order of things. So that hasn't gone away. I haven't found sort of the next Gutenberg, <laughs> but uh, I'm constantly thinking about this stuff. So
0: Writing of your adolescence uh, in your book, Reading Life, Books for the Ages, you wrote this. When I was near shelves of books, I came alive almost as if I were picking up emanations. I felt a sense of perspective, of scale, the solace of the idea of generations, as well as a great desire to do things on my own, to achieve. Uh, I love those words. I don't want future generations to miss that. I don't think you do either. All right, I certainly don't. I really enjoyed that conversation with Sven Burkertz, who is not only an observer of reading and an analyst of the contemporary context, but he's also a writer. And he is one who has seen many of our current realities with a very prophetic eye. I can only wonder where we go from here. If in the year 2011, more copies are being sold of certain books in electronic format than print, how long will it be before the printed book is something of an ancient artifact? I'm reassured by Sven Burkert's confidence that the book will continue. I think he's basically right, but I wonder if it's going to continue and be preserved amongst an ever-decreasing number of persons to whom the book is still important. Just recently, a group of researchers, largely localized at the New York University School of Medicine, Consider the difference that a screen makes. In other words, what's the kind of attention that is required by listening to a classroom lecture, by reading a book, or by staring at a digital screen? One of the interesting things that they discovered is that many children and young people who have attention deficit problems don't have a problem staring at a screen. And the reality is that the screen is giving them immediate gratification, immediate rewards, or changes in pattern. There is movement on the screen. The child or the young person does not have to invest any kind of imagination in the task. The screen's providing everything for them. These researchers and pediatricians are beginning to wonder if the screen is not having a dramatic effect in the way that young people, and for that matter, let's be honest, many older people, are having their brains taught to learn and to think, and yes, even to read. That's why the conversation with Sven Burkert's, I think, points to some basic issues that Christians need deeply to consider. Literacy and attentiveness for Christians is not just something that's important for education, it's something that's important for the soul. It is not by accident that the Christian movement has, from the very beginning, been associated with books, with with, with parchments, with, with writing. It's not by accident that the Christians throughout the ages preserved the learning, their devotion, and, and even the knowledge of the Scripture, plus the Scripture itself, by the process of copying down by hand these works, especially the Bible, until there came the advent of the printing press. The printing press was the first great revolution in terms of the expansion of, of the, the matter of the book, of, of the accessibility of, of printed material, of text with ink on page for the average human being. The Gutenberg Revolution meant that it was possible now for most persons to learn eventually by the means of actually having direct contact with a book, the the trained ability to read a book. It's hard to imagine the kind of technological leap that meant for human beings. It meant that rather than merely hearing or, or seeing at a distance, now persons could hold a book in the hand. This was for Christians an enormous advantage. This was well recognized by Martin Luther and John Calvin and others amongst the Reformers, who, after all, largely disseminated their message to the people by means of the printed word. And, of course, it came with the conviction that the Bible, the very word of God, should be not only translated into the vernacular, but published widely and made accessible so that it could also be in the hands, quite proverbially, of the plowboy as well as of the preacher. Well, we're in a situation now in which there is certainly a new revolution. And this new revolution, the digital revolution, has brought many gains, many very serious and credible intellectual gains. It's not for nothing that we can now Google and find and discover an entire world of resources that that would have taken weeks or months or years to determine in times past if that kind of search process could have been undertaken at all. We now almost feel obligated to know things that previous generations would have found it almost impossible to know and to accumulate and systematically kind of process information that previous generations uh, only saw fleetingly and at some distance. But we do know that the screen does make a difference, that there is not just a basic equivalence between the screen and the book. Now, I'm the owner of a Kindle, and I especially use a Kindle app on an iPad, there are things that I can read well, and, and in terms of the stewardship of my reading, can maximize by means of putting all these things onto the screen. But no, it's not the same thing as reading a book, a codex, a, a printed book with pages and covers. There's a different kind of engagement with that kind of technology. There's a different kind of reading that takes place. When Sven Birkerts talks about the end of the stable hierarchies of the printed page— He's talking about the fact that the text itself can become quickly indeterminate once it is on a screen and no longer on a printed page. Now, that may worry secular authors, but it should certainly be a concern for those who love the Word of God and who understand the importance of preserving the Word and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There are many issues in this conversation that I found exhilarating. First of all, there's just the celebration of reading. The knowledge that we gain so much of our insight are are prompted into so much of our most faithful thinking by means of engagement with the printed text. Now, this is not just the kind of of Luddite warning that suggests that we ought to have nothing to do with these new technologies. I found very morally significant the fact that Sven Burkertz back in 1996, said just basically refuse it, speaking of these new technologies... But in 2011, when the 15th anniversary of the book came along, he says that we should instead be very careful stewards of this new kind of technology. And to quote him, he says, it falls to us individually, one by one, to decide how we will face up to the seduction of the new, how much of it to use, how much of it to refuse. Well, I will find, even as I said in this conversation, that I have to get away from the digital technologies often to do the kind of reading that is necessary for my soul, for my teaching, for my preaching, for my writing, the kind of reading that just has to take place when you're in a chair with a good lamp and you're able to read and think, able to turn a page at a leisure, quickly flip back, I told someone the other day that one of the key issues for me is that if a book has footnotes, well, it's largely useless to me in terms of the, of the screen. I need to be able to, to make notes to engage the text. Reading for me is, is something of a contact sport. It, it, it's not just about holding a book in the hands. It's about making annotations. It's about having an argument with an author that, that even is, is prominent in the context of the book in which I put a check mark here and an X mark there. It has to do with what I consider to be of interest. I can go back to a book that I read 20 or 30 years ago and understand that the, the reader then, who I was then, saw certain words as particularly important, certain passages as particularly meaningful and influential. I may read it with a very different eye now. It's hard to have the same encounter with a digital screen. But you know, on the other hand, I can't travel around with a few hundred of my favorite books in my briefcase, it just doesn't work. Well, it kind of does now on my iPad or on my Kindle or on the Nook or some similar device. There is gain here, and of course, it has to be weighed over against the stewardship of our responsibility as readers. Here's a word to parents. Our children are not growing up in an age in which the book is the first option and the digital world the second. To them, the digital world is primary. We're going to have to work hard. For them to have the same kind of encounter with the printed book that we have known and if we're going to preserve certain kinds of reading we're going to have to make that happen we're going to have to seduce a generation into the gutenberg age and of all things in our generation it might be one of the greatest challenges we face to introduce children to the magic of the book Thanks again to my guest, Ben Burkhurst, for joining me today for Thinking in Public. For more information, go to my website at www.albertmohler.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmohler. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to spts.edu. For information about Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moller.